1: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday.
0: Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.
1: Let's get to our next guest, Dr. William Yates. He is founder and owner of Yates Enterprises. He joins us from Chicago. He's a trauma surgeon. He's an entrepreneur. We've really been looking forward to this conversation, yeah, Carol, totally. because we have many, many questions. And uh, Dr. Yates, really nice to have you with us.
2: Thanks for inviting me. Thank you very much.
1: So tell us about Chicago right now, because I feel like it's one of those cities that maybe we don't hear as much about. We've had your mayor, who I understand you're working with on this program, uh, before I've gotten a chance to, to chat with her. What's the state of play there?
2: Well, what it looks like today, in reference to what it used to be, it's like, a. and I'm born and raised here. So if you go outside, it looks like a ghost town. The schools are paralyzed. They don't know what to do. The people, the constituents are afraid, they're anxious, they're unsure about the future. When I'm out all the time, people say, Doc, what's going to happen? What are we going to do? Not to mention it's an economic catastrophe here. The Tribune just wrote an article, 4,000 small businesses have gone out of business, and they expect a lot more to go out of business even with all that stimulus check money. And, of course, one of the good things I see that's come out, the digital dependence is like increase, which has made, you know, remote work better, telemedicine and e-commerce is kind of flourishing. But other than that, it's pretty much bad news, I would say.
0: Well, and, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. I do wonder, Dr. Yates... You know, unfortunately, times of stress and disconnect often lead to better ways of doing things. And I do wonder, as you look at this world, and I don't want to see anybody lose their business. I don't want to see anybody be out of work. Um, But I do wonder, do we get to a better side, whether it's, you know, how you run business in businesses, how you do things, you know, more online, more digitally, you know, how education is run. Do we get to a better side? Medical, you know, we see a lot more telemedicine happening. Do we get to a better side in your view? Because I feel like you understand kind of the old ways of doing something and then also embracing technology.
2: Right. Well, I mean, in every catastrophe, something good comes out of it. And I say what I see good coming out of this right now is that everybody has to be aware, say, of the business supply chain, that we can't be dependent on other countries to feed us, that we have to become autonomous. And that's very clear without explaining why. And the other thing is the digital platform has shown us how sophisticated it can be and how good it is. Say like for education, I was thinking that, you know, some of the best teachers in the world can now reach some of the worst schools in the world with the digital platform. So that can be expanded. That's something good that has come out. And I think the other thing that we should concentrate on, there should be more information sharing between countries globally, mm-hmm. because if that had happened in the beginning, I don't think, you know, we'd be in this situation. So. I, That's what I think the best things that have come out of this, and other than we all have to be united, which has not happened in the United States, is so fragmented. These people do this, these do that, that's why the numbers keep increasing.
1: Well, and Dr. Yates, one area of fragmentation for sure is something you alluded to, which is the world of education, and Carol and I talk about it all the time from a personal perspective. Both have school-age kids. Um, you know, we're seeing these headlines from University of North Carolina. We're seeing it from you know all sorts of places across the country. New York City sort of going its own way versus Los Angeles and San Francisco and Washington D.C. and other places. I read a great New York article today about love at school down in my hometown of Atlanta. How should we be thinking about schools? This is something you've done some specific work. You've got equipment installed in schools doing thermal temperature checks. But how should we be thinking about education?
2: I think there's a a way to actually go back to school and go back safely. College is another aspect of this because you have a school basically with an assisted living facility. So that's something altogether different. But I think schools can open safely if you do a couple things. There are actually four things. Protect the students, and everyone knows what that means, wearing a mask, staying six feet apart, um, sanitizing. And then you need to screen For potential patients or kids or anyone that has the virus and the way that you do that is questionnaires seem to be good and also with objective data of fever because anybody who's infected the number one sign is usually going to be a fever now that won't catch the asymptomatic people but still we know that people who are symptomatic will have a fever the third thing I think is just broad testing baseline testing everybody has to be tested and has to be tested often to know if they've contracted the virus. And fourth is basically tracking. When you see clusters, you have to track, isolate, quarantine, whatever you need to do. And in the school system specifically, we've also developed kind of pod units Mm. where the students can be separated by basically a plastic uh, partition. And it's no way, if you do these things, if everybody does it, the teachers, administrators, and the students, you will not get coronavirus.
0: So I got to say, it was fascinating reading about your background. Tell me how you came to be a trauma surgeon to, or tell our audience, since I've already read a little bit about it, tell our audience about nope. how you went from being a trauma surgeon to creating this company and why you decided to focus on you know, these various uh, devices, whether it's metal detectors or whether it's you know, being able to take temperatures. Tell us a little bit about that progress.
2: Well, as a trauma surgeon, I just became irritated with hearing over and over again about mass school shootings and violence and all the pain that it causes on the back end and the front end. So I always felt that a simple solution was being missed, such as metal detectors just being deployed in schools, open areas, municipalities and the like. So what I did was I started a company, uh, partnered with the manufacturer, started uh, distributing metal detectors, x-ray equipment to different schools, anybody that would listen to me about the effectiveness of this equipment, because I strongly believe that it only prevent, it prevents violence as well as deters violence. To have violence, you have to have opportunity. And where this has taken me, since I had metal detectors, I was always working on Uh, infrared thermal scanners to combine it with the metal detector, and we were working on this in December before I even heard of COVID. So coincidentally, it became a big deal with COVID because in the airports in Asia, they have a combination unit where you detect metal on the body as well as read your temperature. So I started developing that product as well to bring it here to the United States One, to screen for COVID and just make sure that the country did not become paralyzed. And again, just to prevent a catastrophe. So that's how the timeline went.
0: Dr. Yates, I think there's a lot of um, our listeners saying, yeah, I get that. That makes sense where you could do metal detection as well as thermometers, considering the world that we're living in. What about privacy concerns? I mean, are we ready for it as a society globally and certainly here in the United States for where we just, wherever we go, we're kind of getting our temperature checked and we're also looking to see if maybe you've got a gun on?
2: Yeah. Well, it all comes down to risk versus reward. And we know that the EEOC as well as HIPAA have relaxed all their requirements during this time because it's so much – when you have, say, in Chicago, you have hundreds of thousands of people have died, more than the population of Green Bay, Wisconsin. When you have so much to lose, is it really too much an invasion of privacy to get one measurement on a person that really, if you think about it, is not that – invasive. There are more invasive things that you can do that I think would uh, bring up privacy concerns. But I don't think that the information that you glean from getting a temperature reading uh, compared to what you can prevent, it's well worth
1: it. So, Dr. Yates, as people chat with you, they call you up, what's the question that they're asking? What are the questions that they're asking you, as a doctor, is it all about a vaccine? Is it living with this disease? Like, what's the best advice you give people here in August 2020? We don't have a vaccine. We're trying to get back to school. What's the best advice you give people?
2: Well, I would say, I guess the most questions that I get asked, number one, are about how long this is going to last and mm-hmm. is a vaccine going to be a panacea? You know, we I get asked that every day. And the way I answer that is that the pandemic is going to be here for a while because if you consider, well, this is a worldwide problem. So you have billions of people that would have to receive a vaccination before we would even consider things like a cure. And then you put on top of that, say, in the United States, a lot of polls are showing that up to 50 percent of people are saying they wouldn't take the vaccine even if it came out because of various reasons. So the vaccine in itself, a lot of people are thinking, yeah, it's going to be a win, but it's not going to be a magic trick. So my point being that all these things we're doing, because COVID and other things like COVID are going to be around for a long time, the protection, the screening, the testing and tracking are going to be here for a while. And maybe we won't be in large crowds. Maybe we won't be able to eat out like we used to. Things will change. But the vaccine's not going to be a magic trick. I think what people, what a lot of people don't talk about is I think there needs to be an acceptable treatment for COVID. If you think of things like AIDS, we don't have a vaccine for AIDS, but we have a treatment for AIDS where people just don't drop dead from this disease. I think we also need to develop a treatment mm-hmm. as well as the vaccine so all these people who don't take the vaccine don't ruin it for everybody right. else to keep the
1: virus going. All right. Well, really interesting thoughts and great insights. We really appreciate it. Dr. William Yates, founder, owner of Yates Enterprises. He's an entrepreneur. He's a trauma surgeon uh, working this problem for a lot of different angles. We really appreciate his time joining us on the phone from Chicago.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly
2: on bloomberg radio
1: well we had a little bit of a medical conversation about a vaccine and the potential thereof but we've been puzzling over this notion of what the market makes of all this what investors should be making of it and what folks are gaming out uh it is the big question in many ways carol so we're very grateful to our yeah, team that totally. they actually took this straight on. We are joined by Claire Ballantine, markets and ETF reporter for Bloomberg. Joining us on the phone from Queens, she co-wrote the story, Wall Street Experts Imagine What a Vaccine Could Do to Markets. We're also joined by Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. He joins us from Massachusetts. All right, Joel, as usual, I have questions, you have answers. <laughs> Tell us about this story.
3: I have very few answers on this one uh, because it remains a somewhat of a mental exercise. Um, but, you know, we, we were we put all of our muscle on into this um, vaccine issue, double issue. And one of the things that, you know, is just uniquely Bloomberg, I, I think, is, is, you know, bringing it back to the markets. And one of the questions that we sort of put to the equities team was sort of like, OK, well, if there is a vaccine at some point, um, what does that mean? What, what, what will that do for, for the markets? Would there be a bump or would that bump be short lived or or would there be no bump? Um, and that was sort of where we left it. It was just an open ended invite to the equities team. And, and Claire kind of picked that that up. And, and Claire, like you came up with a couple scenarios that um, that people thought could be likely. What, what were they?
4: Yeah, so this is informed by talking with a lot of um, the expert money managers that we speak with day to day. And they kind of put forth three different scenarios that could happen when a vaccine is successfully introduced. Um, The first is sort of a a new taper tantrum um, with the idea that the Fed, which has really stepped in and helped um, stabilize markets, begins to slowly kind of draw back. That really worries people, and we see sort of a new taper tantrum, um, which would obviously be be very negative. um, Could see stocks and bonds falling. Um, That's sort of, you know, uh, maybe worst case. What else could happen? Maybe, so, Claire,
1: just um, let me interrupt if I can. Remind us what a taper tantrum really is, because we've seen this before. And just r- remind us what that looks like to to an everyday investor.
0: And not to be confused with temper tantrum that we all deal with, <laughs> which, with some which, of our bosses or spouses or whatever. Or,
1: or my two-year-old.
0: <laughs> or your two-year-old. <laughs> well,
4: yeah, they have, they have some similarities. <laughs> it's true. Some, some fear, um, you know, because... The Fed has really supportive markets, you know, what happens when they take away that helping hand. And a lot of it isn't driven by what has actually happened. It's more just the fear of that. Right. Um, so in that case, could see stocks and bonds falling in tandem. Um, a possibility, you know, not, definitely not inevitable or anything like that. So what I think, and I love
0: number two, um, because I feel like if anything, the Fed isn't going to rush away anytime soon. But talk to us a little bit about the second scenario here.
4: Yeah, so we sort of um, came up with the the phrase to call this the supercharged status quo. So this means that, you know, a vaccine is successfully introduced, the market's very um, happy about that, and, you know, market goes up. Um, and people are saying that that you know could happen for obvious reasons, but also because the Fed isn't going to necessarily step away from these huge stimulus efforts right away. Um, a lot of it is because, like what we saw with the taper tantrum back in 2013, it's very hard to undo this quantitative easing. So in that case, market goes up. Also, everything just gets more expensive.
1: And so behind door number three is what
4: <laughs> Well, this is the idea that some of these value stocks that have really been beaten down in this um, post-COVID world means that maybe those could start to do well. So some of those areas that have really um, been hurt hard, like the airlines, um, cyclicals, small caps, those could start to outperform. Um, And that would be the case of a a broadening market. You know, we've seen the tech stocks do well, but with a vaccine, that could be the gateway to many other sectors also doing well.
0: And I got to say, can I just, you know, Joel, like you look at something like um, United is down 61% this year. You know, when things start to get better, you know, these are the kinds of names that ultimately will take off.
3: I mean, that in in theory, right? Like, right. In theory. The, the airline, the airline industry is obviously one that I think a lot of people um, have focused on. And, you know, I think Claire is, written about the ETF jets, which has become this really interesting one of, uh, and, and saw just a like a, basically a record, uh, uh, set a record for inflows because so many people were like trying to call the bottom. And then, you know, even now though, we, you know, we still don't um, have a recovery that is meaningful for that industry. So, but, you know, value clear is something that um, gets kicked around a lot. is something that like, it's just, this revival is always just around the corner. What, why would a vaccine, in particular, help value stocks?
4: Yeah, so value stocks—we're talking about um, shares that are sort of trading at, at low prices relative to their, their assets—and um, so a lot of these um, have really been hurt by the fact that you know we've all been locked down, and so you know we can't go out to shopping malls or restaurants, things like that. So some of these. Um, areas with a vaccine, people might be able to to get out more, to give like small businesses um, their money and that could help get things more back to a more normal economy.
1: I'm just gonna
0: say this is everything you need to know to understand kind of what may happen in the markets.
1: Yeah, no, it's really smart, a really nice roadmap and as Joel pointed out, we don't know what's gonna happen, but these are (laughs) three uh very uh possible scenarios. So our thanks to Claire Valentine and the team for putting this together. Clara's markets and ETF reporter for Bloomberg. She joined us from New York. Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, joined us from Massachusetts.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Jason Kelly on
1: Bloomberg Radio.
0: Ready to do some economics, Jason Kelly? Do you remember do it. how it works?
1: I do remember how it works. <laughs> this is the time we do economics. <laughs>
0: I love it. I love it. Uh, You're with it. You're with it. You did get (laughs) some rest and relaxation. Totally with it. All right. So let's get to Business Week Economics. Um, Ali Wolf is with us, Chief Economist at Myers Research, uh, joining us on the phone from Irvine, California. We did get Housing Starts data today. And I know, um, Ali, this is something that you watch very closely. Tell me about the data. Tell me what you're seeing.
5: Yep. So thank you guys for having me today. The report was it beat all expectations, though all of us that follow the housing market were not overly surprised. Housing has been one of the strongest sectors in the economy, and you see that in the data. We saw, let's exclude the multifamily data for now because the margin of error was plus or minus 50%. But if you look at single-family starts, that's the less volatile sector, up 7% year-over-year year in a pandemic and in a downturn.
1: And so... I- and, and I say this with, with respect and, and uh, affection here, Ali. Why do we care about this? Like, why, why is it such an important um, economic indicator? I mean, I understand why housing is important, but why this particular number, and especially given everything that's going on in the world?
5: It's a great question, because if you look at the resale market, so normally resales represent 90% of overall transactions. What we've seen is resale inventory is down 36% year over year. People don't want strangers coming in their homes. They're afraid of COVID. Maybe they refinanced. That's fine. But if we don't get new inventory from the builders, then we're not going to have home sales. If we don't have home sales, then good luck to all of the companies that are related to the housing market that all of a sudden the banks get hurt. All of a sudden the retailers get hurt. And so the builders are the only game in town right now and inventory's low already. So we need to see more building right now to be able to keep this momentum going. Allie, that's interesting.
0: Do you think the home builders are going to, you know, do that? Do they have the means to do it?
5: Ha-ha. Uh-huh. So that, the reason I laugh is because that's the problem. So mm. entering 2020, we had a lot of builders say, you know, we're going to do more starts than we did in 2019. And then we're having builders tell us now we want to build even more homes than we originally planned for 2020, but now we're running into this problem that builders may be gapping out. All of a sudden, appliances are getting harder to get their hands on because of supply chain challenges. Roofers are going out of business. Lumber prices, I don't need to tell you guys, up 90% since mid-April. So all of a sudden, there's these two problems that the builders are facing.
0: It's real. I have to say, um, I was away for a week um, at the beach in a home, and the oven didn't work. And we're like, okay, piece of cake, you know, call and you know, or you know, get a new oven. in. no, there are no ovens they said available. And even if there were. There's nobody around to put them in. Like that's what our world
1: is. I really thought this was <laughs> going to take another turn. That you were like, I was out for a week. I was lumberjacking, and I just, you know, Jason I saw Kelly. It. I am now building homes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> doing it all. And so, so Allie. So, synthesize this into an economy. I mean, this is the question that we ask any uh, smart economist that we have on our air, and it comes off of a conversation we just had about the markets, which is this continual disconnect that we seem to be living in between an economy that is uncertain, to say the least, and a market, an equity market, at least, that feels very certain about where it's going. What are the data telling you about the health of the overall U.S. economy?
5: Yep. And so I'm going to go into alphabet soup, and I apologize for this. But we've kind of combined it into two different things. So I'm sure you guys have heard about the K-shape recovery. If you look at the top half of the K, we have such positive indicators. You have the unemployment rate for those that have a bachelor's degree under 7%. That is good in normal times, and not let alone in the times that we're in today. Anyone that can work from home, any of the companies that are related to this online, this new shift in demand, are doing fantastic and you see that in the equities market what you don't see is well, i mean some of the stocks are still getting hit but you see lodging you see people that can't work from home you see mm-hmm. people that don't have that high of an education level you see families that are facing pains because of child care so they're that bottom half of the k but now all of a sudden you're just facing com- two completely different economies and i think the stock market is probably fixating on the hope that the top half of the k can raise the rest of the economy. But my fear is the rising tide can't lift all boats when people are afraid of the virus.
0: So are we easily still in a recession come 2021?
5: Uh, Well, I would argue technically we probably are not in a recession anymore based on how the National Bureau of Economic Research does it. But I do for sure think we are still in a very bad place in the economy in 2021. Yes, I think the unemployment rate will still be very high. I think the recovery is still fragile, even though we do see pockets of
1: strength. And geographically, how much does it vary? I mean, I believe you're joining us from from California, Ali. I mean, how much does it vary depending on where you are in the country as you sort of take the data, you know, one level down? How much of it depends on, on where you are?
5: Yep, yeah, and I think it depends on where you are and it depends on what has happened to not only your state in terms of how much are they having to pay out for the initial jobless claims, how much are their budgets getting hit on the state level, so thinking about California obviously has been hit quite hard, but also looking at what has been the long-term trend. Places like Austin, Phoenix, Vegas, Raleigh, I know Vegas is crazy to even bucket into that, but there has been so much positive net migration in some of these markets across the country that even as some of the economic data doesn't look as good, if there's positive net migration a concentration of higher-income individuals and some job diversity, you're definitely seeing it's way different by location.
1: Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And we just don't know what the sort of synthesizing some of the things you said, we don't know you know, what this sort of remote work environment is going to mean for where people live <gasps> and a lot of conflicting uh, I- data out there, to say the least. All right, Ali. well, thank you so much. Uh, Chief Economist joining us from California at Myers Research.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week Small Business Survival Guide, we've got a collaboration between Small Biz and Bloomberg Hyperdrive, which you might not know and you should know, but it's our team in Vertical that covers the future of transportation technology. Back with us is Bloomberg News Editor Dimitra Kessanidis on the phone in New Jersey along with Digital Motors CEO Andy Henricks. Uh, he is on the phone from Irvine, California. And Digital Motors, a really cool company. It's a startup that can pretty much turn an old-fashioned car dealership into a Tesla-esque web store. So, Demetra, let's start with you. Talk to us about this collaboration. Hi. Yeah. Well, Carol, you know,
6: we've been looking at a lot of startups at Hyperdrive because when the pandemic hit, it just seemed like, oh, you know, what we predicted was it was going to be a lot of startup stories that were not going to pan out. That things were going to become so challenging over the next year or so that probably we were going to see players in electric vehicles and autonomous and more that weren't going to survive because of money, cash flow problems, and more. But in fact, you know, quite the opposite is happening with several businesses, and Digital Motors is one of them. Kyle Stock did this interview with Andy, and it really all came down to timing. You know, this was a business that was getting ready to go, uh, but the pandemic. Speeded up their timeline quite a bit, and um, and tapped into something that's happening right now, which is the need to turn car buying into e-commerce.
1: So, Andy, tell us about that. Andy Hendricks, the CEO of Digital Motors, uh, how were you able to make this pivot, or were you sort of there waiting as all this happened?
7: Well, we were certainly not there waiting, but <laughs> but we already were 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 you know targeting the trend towards digitalization in the automotive space. You know, so what we've been working on for a year and a half is a comprehensive online car-buying platform, and, you know, it encompasses the whole buying journey from finding the right car to getting to reliable monthly payment, credit approval, and home delivery. And then the crisis struck, and we found ourselves live in market a full quarter earlier than planned.
0: Right. Well, listen, I mean, what's interesting, Andy, is you guys weren't planning to launch until the summer, but with the COVID-19 pandemic and the change in our world, uh, you guys upped your, you know, opening.
7: Exactly. Uh, We accelerated, you know, a full three months and it actually was prompted by a dealer that faced a full shutdown of his operation. You know, nobody could come to the showroom. That was at the end of March. And that dealer called us on a Friday and said, hey, you know, I need the store. I want you guys to help me. We worked nonstop throughout that weekend and launched the store by that following Monday. And actually, that very first dealer became the number one Jeep dealer in all of California.
1: Wow. Well, what's interesting, Andy, too, is when you you know when I came to learn a little bit about your business and and what you're aiming to do, I think many people who learn about this say. Thank God, because I, for one, hate buying a car under the current um, <laughs> yeah. system. It's terrible. You know, it's it's stressful. It takes a huge amount of time. Why hasn't this happened before?
7: Well, you know, first of all, people love cars, but I agree with you. There's probably a, a lot that can be improved in the buying experience. And, you know, it's not only the consumer that's ready for this new experience. It's the dealership as well. And that's where we saw the opportunity. So, Why leaving new car online sales just to Tesla? Why not empowering dealerships of traditional brands with the same type of experience? And that's what we set out to do. And it turns out customers love the experience. You know, something that takes hours in the traditional process gets done in 10 or 15 minutes. And guess what? The dealerships love love it too because it's a lot more efficient for them. Rather than tying up all their salespeople with individual customers, the customers walk in, um, or you don't have to walk in if they choose to have home delivery, and the whole deal is done by the time the first dealership the person touches it.
0: No kicking the tires. Very different world, Demetra, I just do wonder as you guys cover small business and you're also working with Hyperdrive. I mean, you're seeing a lot of small businesses have to pivot, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I and think big businesses, exactly. <laughs>
6: All kinds. But, you know, if you think about delivery businesses, you know, we did we did some stories about that on Hyperdrive recently. Again, a startup where it struck the right deal at the right time with Walmart last summer. And as a result, you know, its business was really just booming these last eight months. So, you know, and again, I think it's similar to Digital Motors story. It's not necessarily that these folks saw the pandemic coming. They happen to be working towards something where they really recognize the big need in the market, and the pandemic just really um, fed that up and heightened the need. And so, um, so for us, it's been a nice experience of really discovering more of these stories that aren't the very big challenges and the, so- the stories about the businesses, you know, going away and never coming back. And yeah. and, and yeah. that's that's kind of a nice thing to focus on. So. Totally,
1: you might say in this yeah. case, Carol, the pandemic threw it into. Hyperdrive. Yeah. See what I did there? All yeah. right, Dimitri Castanitos, thank you so much. Apparently you need so more much. vacation. The editor <laughs> and editor for Bloomberg. She works across uh, so many of the big elements and yeah. big efforts that we have going on. Uh, our thanks, to to Andy Hendricks. He is the CEO of Digital Motors. He joined us on the phone from Irvine, California.
8: I'm driving in my car. I turn
1: on the radio. Hey,
2: how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home?
1: All right, it is time for The Drive to the Close. Here on this Tuesday, we turn to one of our trusted guys, David Dietz, President and Chief Investment Strategist for Point View Wealth Management, looking after more than $7 billion. He joins us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. All right, so David, we are looking at a market that continues to, at least by some accounts, defy gravity in the face of some still pretty scary headlines when it comes to the virus. I think scary to say the least. And yet you, I believe, are even more optimistic in terms of where it could go from here.
8: Why? Well, Jason, you know I agree with you that it's almost surreal here. That despite the deepest recession since the 1930s, we got this double-digit unemployment, over three quarters of a million people dead across the world from COVID-19. We're back to almost trading in record territory, and the S and P 500 re- recovering all the pandemic-caused losses. But we have have no vaccine. So what gives? But you're right. We are actually continuing to be very constructive on this market. We could see another 5% before year end. And, you know, what is the key factor that we're looking at, Jason? It's all about the vaccine
0: okay all about the vaccine but i want to throw at you david a story that jason and i just talked about briefly and i know doug Krisner did as well the u.s state department asking colleges and universities to divest from chinese holdings in their endowments and also issuing a school to the schools a warning Um, to get ahead of potentially more onerous measures on holding the shares. Is that a political threat in an election year, or is that something where we as a nation, as we continue to kind of divide up um, the world and kind of move away from our relationship with China, that's something that
8: you think could be lasting and
0: worrisome maybe for the markets and investors? Well,
8: you know, it's a little bit of both. And certainly I'm from the old school of economy, which says more trade, the more global, the better, better off all people's are as they specialize in what they do best. Um, you know, on the other hand, we are within 100 days of the election, probably within 90 days. So the timing of this announcement as we get closer and closer and the incumbent is looking for, quite frankly, some perhaps Hail Mary shots here to try and close the gap that's now opened up between him and Mr. Biden by, you know, picking additional fights, grabbing additional news conference with the easy punching bag, which is China. Uh, You know, but the fact of the matter is, um, that does not really affect the fundamentals. So you're dismissive,
0: you would be dismissive as an investor of of a story or a headline like this.
8: Yeah, because I think there's a good chance that we see a change in government. And of course, although a lot of people are very concerned about a change because of higher taxes, I think most economists and strategists see that there could be a relaxation of trade tensions with a new administration. Now, mind you, there are real genuine beefs that we may have with China we don't want to be taken advantage of. On the other hand, kind of this headline-grabbing, high-tariffs divest throw uh, companies off from listings, I think is more designed to uh, grab attention to actually resolve in a responsible matter our differences.
1: So, David, as we think about what is driving this optimism that you described, you mentioned vaccines. We had a conversation earlier about sort of the the various things that may happen when a vaccine becomes available in terms of market reaction. In the meantime, as we get there, are there, for lack of a better term, sort of investable ideas? I mean, do you as an investor start to pick winners and losers? How do you invest against this optimism or into it?
8: Yeah. Well, I, I do think that you have to have a fundamental optimism that the vaccine will eventually come around. And with over 200 enterprises working on it globally, and it's almost become like a, a international race to the top, like getting to Mars for the countries to come up with their solution. Um, I think we will see something before year end it will be distributed next year. So then you start saying, well, which companies can survive through this valley and make it to the other side and which perhaps won't? and unfortunately, a lot of the small businesses, particularly restaurants, won't. But we are looking at some leaders in some industries that are now downbeaten. One example I would give you right now is the gaming business. And the one we like here is MGM Grand. Mm. Why do we like it? We think people will eventually return to Las Vegas. They have a quarter of the market. They have a good chunk in Macau. They're likely to get a license in Japan. But I think what people have failed to recognize with this stock now down 40 percent just since February. So it's, it's pandemic. Cause this downturn um, is that Barry Diller of IAC Interactive is just amassed a massive 12% stake, and he sees the possibility of MGM developing online gambling. And although I'm not a big fan of gambling myself, other than the stock market, I guess, it, it, it is coming, and I think more and more states are going to embrace it as they need to look for ways to close their budget gaps. We're seeing DraftKings, which mm-hmm. has no uh, profits whatsoever, having a market cap more than the MGM. The market wants it. MGM could also um, increase its value by pursuing uh, that endeavor and uh, also benefit as uh things get better with the pandemic.
0: So we're going to essentially have a lot of small businesses that close down, a lot of -of out-of-work Americans who are online gaming.
8: <laughs> well, we've already seen that. People with their um, stimulus checks and more time. Uh, we have seen in play, in uh, brokerage venues like Robinhood and uh, sports gaming, to the extent there's sports, a huge surge of interest. Whether that's the right way to spend time, that's something else. But we're seeing it. And I think uh, some of these companies that have a pole position now will ultimately be able to benefit from that.
1: All right. David Dietz, always good to catch up with you. Thank you so much for your time. President, Chief Investment Strategist at Point View Wealth Management. Joining us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.